I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode 152 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode, I'm joined by a writer whose work spans over four decades now. David Quantic joined NME as a staff writer in 1983 and also just happens to be a hugely successful comedy writer and screenwriter for some of the most outstanding TV and radio series over the past 30 years. We're talking on the hour, the day-to-day, the thick of it, TV burp, veep, for which he won an Emmy in 2015, and Avenue 5. As a novelist, David's books are always very funny and very thought-provoking too. Ricky's Hand, Night Train, All My Colours, just some of the many highlights. These wonderful, bizarre, mind-bending stories that he's capable of, often darkly comic, but just brilliant. He also created How to Write Everything, the writer's toolkit, which we'll chat about too. As a music journalist, David has written so many reviews of The Jam, The Style Council and Paul Weller Solo, so we're going to dig into those. And a warning, this could be the podcast that completely destroys that end goal. Because David is the fellow, or one of the fellas, that Paul Weller rang up to ask for a fight. <laughs> so Paul, if you're listening, I'm sorry, but we had to do it. Let's get into it. David Quantic, thanks for joining me. No, thanks. It's lovely to be here. A real delight to have you on because we're going to dig into your memories as a music journalist, particularly. There are countless awards behind you. So we, it would be remiss of me not to talk about your life as an award winning writer of comedy, some fantastic comedy shows on radio and TV. So we'll dig into a bit of that as well. And obviously the Weller connections, the Weller experiences as well, because I mean, this is going to be fun because those experiences haven't always been the most positive. It's fair to say, right? No, he did threaten to beat me up once. So no, but yeah, I mean, I was an enemy journalist list from the early 80s onwards so me and paul have kind of yeah crossed paths literally and not literally lots i mean there's nobody else really who's had such a long career out of that group of people and i'm very old so it works 
Well, uh, I mean, it's about time we had some balance on this show, to be honest. We're, we're episode 150 plus now, so it, it'll be good to get some of the other side as well. So magazines was where this all started for you, this incredible career, this incredible journey, right? Yeah, I started writing for a magazine called City Limits, which was a left-wing listings magazine in London. Did a story for them, did some reviews, and then started writing for the NME. And I was a freelancer at the NME from 1983 until 1987, I say, from cowpunk to Britpop. <laughs> incredibly long time and yeah I did other things as well I started writing comedy and stuff like that but my main source of culture and life was the enemy for that long time the music was clearly a passion from what growing up I'm guessing well yeah I mean in my teens I got into music through the John Peel show really and through other people's record collections and then yeah I mean the great thing about the enemy was it wasn't just hyping about music as it often is now. So as I've got a record out, this is streaming, here's an interview. It was writing, you know, it produced a lot of brilliant writers who later went on to write other kinds of things as well. And there was a lot of freedom there. So I learned how to write comedy just by mocking people in the NME. So that was fun. <laughs> I read that you got the gig with the, the NME by slagging them off. Didn't you write to them telling them they were rubbish? Was that right? <laughs> Yeah, I was annoyed by a review of Bob Seger, who was like a blow-dry-haired American FM rocker. Although later I found out there was more to him. And I wrote to the editor a really long type letter that said, Bob Seger is not enough. And he invited me in and he gave me a Peter Tosh album and a couple of other albums. And I started writing for the NME and it was like, oh, I get paid for this. And by signing on as well for a few months, I was able to maintain a reasonable lifestyle in my Brixton bedsit. Now, obviously, your work with the enemy comes after the jam. So your, your your life as a journalist comes after the jam being a band. So in terms of the world of punk, was that certain, a new wave and all that was something that you that you were interested in? And were the jam ever your thing? Well, I started listening to John Peel in 1978. Um, so the first jam record that I heard, fortunately, was all mod cons, which is also still my favourite piece of Paul Weller music. I love it. You know, John Peel was playing it before it came out. So you get three tracks a night. So I remember hearing things like In the Crowd, and I'd never heard away from And it was just, it's an amazing sounding rock record. People always forget the jam were a rock band. They weren't actually a soul band or a mod band. They were a hard rocking band. And because I liked the Beatles, I knew about the Beatles. I could understand the backwards guitars and the harmonies. You know, there's a lot of Beatles in all mod cons, even though it's a bigger sound. It's a really great, I didn't know anything about the history of it. I hadn't heard the previous albums, fortunately. I hadn't really heard the singles. <laughs> So it was quite overwhelming. And then I just started going to Woolworths. The jam would always go in the charts and fall out. So you could always get their early singles or like when you're young and strange now, you could always get them for 30 pence because they hadn't really been big hits. So it was easy. Then he played all the B-sides. Yeah, I continued to follow the I saw the jam in 1979 at Exeter University. Didn't think they were very good on that particular. All I remember is the smoke bomb at Avon and Water Street went <laughs> off and just filled the building. I think they'd been a bit ambitious with the pyrotechnics there. And then, yeah, when I became an enemy journalist, as you say, they had split up. One of the first things I wrote was a review of the Style Council, St. David's Hall in Cardiff. And I don't remember the review very well, but it is online. And then it was my first moment of what it's like being an enemy journalist when I was at a drinks do. And Paolo Hewitt, who worked for the Melody Maker, came up to me and said, Paul wants to talk to you. Because that sort of thing happened in those days and a lot with Paul Weller. So I was like, oh. And then Paul Weller came and said, what, was that, what do you mean by that review? And I tried to explain whatever I meant when he went, oh, 
and walked off. And I was really impressed. I mean, I was quite scared, but I was really impressed that somebody was actually interested in what a journalist had to say instead of whining on about how they're always misrepresented in the press. Everyone knows that musicians read their press. Everyone knows they care about it. And it was really interesting that somebody was concerned enough about what they did, what their work was, to listen to an opinion they may not have heard. At the time, the, the NME is huge. It's a, you know, there's this weekly paper is such an important thing for music fans. And you've obviously got Melody Make and you've got Sounds and all that as well. It was an important time to be a music journalist. It was an interesting time because, yeah, I mean, we weren't important. You only found out that you were important when you met someone in a band who was really upset that you'd been rude about them because it did have a real impact on people's... If you weren't getting paid, played on Radio 1, and, they were, you know, and you weren't getting your videos on MTV or whatever, then you were either on the John Peel show... Or in the NME, so it was. It was important. It was selling a, during punk. It famously sold a quarter of a million, but after punk, it dropped a lot. But it's still selling one hundred and fifty thousand copies a week. You know, and if half the readers buy that, that's enough to give you a hit single. We weren't as important as we thought we were. You know, we didn't realise that most people really bought the NME to find out when the albums were coming out and when bands were coming to their towns. Most people didn't go, "Oh my God, Adrian Thrills has written a review. I absolutely must own this issue." Although Adrian Thrills <laughs> is a great writer, but yeah. In the 70s and through punk, enemy writers had been almost as famous as the bands in some circles, but that was changing, fortunately. But it was still an interesting time to be a journalist, and I still meet people who say, oh, I used to read you in the NME. And fortunately, most of them say they enjoyed it, but it is quite strange. Was it always your intention to write with humour? I'm guessing there was no other way for you in terms of that, that comes through naturally, but that was tended to be your slant, wasn't it? Well, I couldn't really not do it. I mean... I really admire people like Ian Penman and Paul Morley, who got slagged off a lot. And they're not very funny writers, with all due respect to them. But I loved Danny Baker, who obviously went full-on comedy. thought Julie Birchall was a great writer, still is. Very funny. Tony Parsons less funny. And I never saw why even Charles Shaw Murray was funny. I never saw why rock music had to be humorless. And I was always very interested in people who couldn't take mockery because mockery is funny. And music journalism is commenting on things, and so is comedy. You can't do comedy if there's nothing to take the piss out of, and you can't do music journalism if there's nothing to write about. And as I say, we had a lot of freedom to write. You know, we had a 70-page issue to fill every week. You know, everything in it was in the bin on Wednesday afternoon when the paper came out, so you had to start again. And that meant they were very open to filler. And you'd go like, oh, I've got an idea, you know, for an inter- a pretend interview with somebody in the style of this, or, you know, I'll write the gossip column in the style of Flan O'Brien, or I'll write this review as a comedy dialogue. And they were well up for it. And the enemy's always been good when it's funny. It was funny during punk. It was very funny during Britpop with people like Stuart McConey and Andrew Collins. It was, when I joined the enemy in 1983, it was not funny because we'd had punk, we'd had post-punk, two-tone had gone. It was kind of grim. It was like the early days, the last days of the Bunnymen, the early days of Nick Cave, an awful lot of great people, but no fun. It was all a bit smacky, if I can use that word. That's come through in everything you've written. So when you were writing your reviews, even now, like you, your way with language, with words, I mean, obviously that's important as a writer. That sounds ridiculous, right? But you'd always look for that quirky angle on things to be able to paint a picture, which is a, you know, a real art. I mean, that's, that's a proper skill, isn't it? Obviously you just get better as you do it, the more you do it. But was it something that you discovered when you were at school that, yeah, I can write, I can do this? I know I wanted to write. I didn't think I could write and certainly not for money. I remember listening to the Goon shows and that was the first time I realized that there was something that was kind of in tune with my sense of humor. But being able to write like the Goon shows isn't going to give you a career in journalism. 
No, I just kept writing. I just couldn't really stop. And even though it was clear there was no money in it, it just never occurred to me to be a writer. And even when I wrote to the enemy, I didn't realize that I was actually passively, aggressively writing, looking for a job. I just thought I was writing a complaint letter. But, you know, Neil Spencer, the editor, correctly interpreted it as passive-aggressive job letter, probably because he got loads of them every week. I love the fact that it, I mean, it seems so easy, doesn't it, to get the gig at that time as well. And also, it, you mentioned like the access to artists and the access to musicians as well. You, know, you didn't have to create like podcasts of over 150 episodes to get an interview with Mr. Weller or get an interview with Bowie in New York and some of the amazing things that you got to do. The access to these big stars was there because of the importance of the music press, I guess. But it was, it feels like this is so easy in your world back then. I mean, the music press didn't like thinking of itself as part of the music industry, but we were. You know, we relied on the music industry for free records, for gig tickets. We relied on it for travel, you know, because the, the music industry wasn't stupid. They realized that if you did Sting in New York, that would obviously be more, in, or Sting in India, that'd be more interesting than Sting in London. When I started, everyone went on about how the golden days were over, but you could still live on record companies. You know, you could get lunch with a record company. You could get record companies to pay for your evening out. You've got free tickets, free clothes free drinks parties. There's a reason that I had a problem with alcohol. There's a reason that most of my friends had problems with alcohol. We were constantly given it. And in return, what was funny was that in return, we weren't even expected to be nice. There was a hope. And because of punk, I think, the enemy writing culture had become very negative. It was assumed in the enemy that you would be nasty to someone. You know, that's why when Q magazine came in, it did so well, because Mark Allen and David Hepworth brought in the idea that maybe if you were a musician, people might be nice about you. And that maybe if people, the reason that Eric Clapton and Meatloaf were popular were because millions of people liked their music. And if you went along and said you liked their music too, that was unheard of at the end of me. You know, it was this kind of, an example would be the day of Live Aid, probably the most famous music event of the 80s, which changed the concept of rock music. NME ran a big piece about it, but they also ran a pretend chart called Bob Geldof's 10 Best Songs, and it was blank. (laughs) Yeah, it was that kind of vicious bitterness, which was great, really enjoyable. But that was the thing, you know, you'd go. I had a colleague now gone who went to a gig, and the manager of the group tried to bribe him, and he refused the money. Whereas what I would have done is taken the money and given it a bad review anyway. (laughs) Yeah, so it was really hard being a PR in those days. You know, you take somebody out, you buy them a meal, you give them drinks, you give them clothes and records. And at the end of it, you get, you know, Queen our shit (laughs) would be the cover. So it was a very strange, we'd we'd say, entitled life, really. You know, you'd never get away with it now. And probably a good thing too. But it was lots of fun. And we enjoyed sharing our lifestyles with the readers. Now, on the jam, you once wrote um, about the split and you said Paul Weller's career has always benefited from the tension between his love of image and his desire to be creative. And so the jam became the first punk band to split up, not because of the man or chart failure or drugs, but because their singer was bored, bored of the stylistic handcuffs of rock. So I thought it was a lovely paragraph, but um, how much did the jam splitting affect you? I'm guessing not a huge amount, but um, that tension between his love of image and his desire to be creative is an interesting one. Gosh, I have no memory. Was that a jam compilation? I have no memory of that review. Was it in? (laughs) 
it was it was part of a bigger piece about all kinds of different artists. And how did you phrase it? You were talking about people like Stevie Wonder and McCartney and people oh, yeah. different different phases of different artists. Yeah, I mean that's why he wanted to beat me up, but we'll come to that later. Yes, I'd enjoyed the jam, but I'd loved all mod cons. I loved the singles. And then to me they started to go a bit gammy. I thought Funeral Pyre was crap. Precious was just Papa's got a brand new pig bag. That last album, the the gift, is it called that? I thought that was dreadful, apart from Coronation, which was a really nice song. And I was just kind of bored of the jam. And they were very popular. And they started to get this kind of lad following, like Oasis did later. So it was this interesting contrast. The fans got more and more meat and potatoes. And Weller was getting more and more unusual. And I enjoyed the beat surrender, even though it's not really a song. It's a collection of catchphrases. And I'm like, oh, great, the jam split up. That's a nice record. Never mind. And I say, and I really loved the Style Council. I thought that was a brilliant thing to do. Yeah, when the Style Council came along, I'm like, oh, this is amazing because this is a real, everybody was doing soul and dance at this point and dressing up and things. It was a reaction against everything. But the Style Council were great. And I really loved Long Hot Summer, Ever Changing Moves. And they just got, even when they were, weren't very good, they were interesting. And yeah, he just suddenly was this huge explosion, this freedom. I mean, I will say something heretical, possibly horrible. There's the two big freedom moments in Paul Weller's life, when the jam split up, and less nicely, when his dad died. And I don't mean that cruelly, but when John Weller died, you know, at the end of a very long career looking after Paul Weller, Weller just seemed to be, he changed, he gave up drinking, and he became experimental again. And it could be a complete coincidence, it could just be nonsense that I'm talking. But I think, you know, a big traumatic event like that either knocks you down completely, or you make a fresh start. And certainly with the jam splitting up, that was an obvious fresh start. And that's when I began to get interested in what he did again. And it is interesting, someone like Weller. It's interesting that Noel Gallagher just hasn't bothered. That, you know, you've got the choice of being sort of reliable and solid and doing the hits or doing something different. And Weller managed to do it without shooting himself in the foot. You know, he didn't go out and make inappropriately experimental albums. He didn't do a tin machine, although I quite like a tin machine. He didn't go out and spit in people's faces musically. He just did something completely different. They also fit. If you're a Paul Weller fan who really liked what Paul Weller was doing, then you would enjoy the style council because they were a logical progression. It's interesting what you say about his dad's also, I guess there's also that realisation of how time, short as time is. And yeah. I think there was, he's talked about this kind of idea of, um, you know, suddenly you're more aware of your legacy or your, your catalogue of things that you leave, you know, that, that time being short. So let's do as many different things. And that freedom comes from that, I guess. But the style, the style council you mentioned, I mean, you once tweeted, it is a fact not universally acknowledged that the style council were great. And you talked about the fact that they were so eclectic, so political, full of jazz, soul, rap and clothes. And this collective. Yeah, I mean, they tried to do almost everything, you know. Basically, they tried to do anything that wasn't a jam, so there weren't any loud guitars. But then people had gone off guitars in the mid-80s. Rockism, that was a fantastic thing. Yeah, and they just they did do rap. And it was the ambition, you know. It's like listening to the jam, listening to In the City, you wouldn't think, oh, he's going to be playing jazz in six years' time. It was not trying too hard. It was going outside your boundaries, not staying in your lane, doing jazz. When you listen to something like, one of my favourites on the absolute beginner soundtrack. Have you ever had it blue? That's amazing. Really good. And didn't always work. I don't think, you know, I don't think he's the best rapper in the world, but <laughs> it was the ambition. And then you have this weird moment in history when both the Pet Shop Boys and the Style Council are doing house records, are doing Chicago, whatever it's called. And you think, ah, we've come to this where the Style Council and the Pet Shop Boys are existing in the same space. And then, of course, Get the Pet Shop Boys remixing Paul Weller in the 21st century, which is just weird. 
Well, presumably your paths crossed um, at Smash Hits, did they or not? No, Neil Tennant had gone, long gone before then. Okay. I used to sit in the NME office, which was in Carnaby Street, and look out the window, and you could see Smash Hits on the other side of the road. You could literally look through their window, and I just used to think, I want to be there. And then later on I was, but Neil had gone by then. Yes, I think he was just starting the Pet Shop Boys just when I was starting to be a music journalist, so he was always 10 steps ahead. Of course, yeah, that would make sense. Um, somebody tweeted, actually, um, Alex McLaughlin, actually on Facebook. So Alex McLaughlin got in touch on Facebook and he asked, was it David who reviewed the Costa Loving album and said it should have been an EP? I'm pretty sure it was the NME review that said it. If so, has he changed his mind? If not, does he agree? I can't remember. I don't think it was me. I'm not very familiar with the Costa Loving, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I can't answer that. Okay, the orange so album be... wasn't your wasn't your bag. Were you into the um, our favourite shop? Was it was that a thing? Yeah, I played it the other day. I really liked it, and it had interesting people on it. And I was more a singles fan with them. I will be honest. I did review the the compilation. That's probably my favourite. Again, with Paul Weller, singles are generally a good place to go. I get all the albums mixed up. To be honest, I've just a vague memory of Lenny Henry doing a rap and everything but the girl. But well, my favourite thing of everything the girl in the style council was on an NME tape. They do English Rose, I seem to recall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have to that take that great. out. Yeah, great. You talk about the singles, actually, and you said about Long Hot Summer that it was as good a pop ballad as anybody has ever made. I absolutely love that because it achieves its ambition of sounding like the summer. It's languid and hot and sticky and all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really great, Long Hot Summer. And, of course, it was that... That work ethic thing. It seemed that Style Council, like a lot of people at that time, had something out every week. You know, we live in a world where people take five years to plan an album. And, you know, Paul Weller had gone from, I don't know, Funeral Pyre to Long Hot Summer in the space of about an hour, it felt like. You also, in recent years, some of the Style Council stuff has been not just kind of revisited from a, um, we had the documentary and, you know, they seem to be getting more of the kudos, perhaps, that some of the songs deserve and the albums they deserve. But you reviewed some of the reissues. You talked about confessions and, um, and again, actually the singles, interestingly, were the focus, but you talked about how she threw it all away and why I went missing being just brilliant songs. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of cloaked by the, Slightly ironic tongue-in-cheek titles on those. If he had just stuck to writing normal choruses and stuff, but he just had a massive gift for melody, which was somewhat buried by the jam, you know, because to be honest, with a three-piece rock group, there's really not much you can do, but with the room to expand. Annie, I don't really know anything about songwriting, being a journalist, but obviously he was able to expand out of his previous comfort zone because he was listening to different music and experimenting. And he doesn't really get in. Because of the kind of mod father thing and the dad rock thing, you know, Paul Weller doesn't get much credit for being an experimenter. And to be honest, his 90s career didn't help much with that. But there we go. You were not a big fan, it's fair to say, of the early solo stuff, right? And this was the time at which your comedy is becoming a bigger thing. You start submitting stuff to Spitting Image. We must talk about the Armando Iannucci connection and the start of like on the hour and things like that in a second, because I love that show. It's fabulous. But the early Paul Weller solo years were not necessarily your thing, right? I do remember I was working on a comedy show called Saturday Zoo, and there was a bloke on it called Sean Rowley, who's gone on to do other things, DJing and stuff, who knew Paul. And he booked Paul on the show. And I think it's the first time that it was a Paul Weller movement were on TV. I forget what they did, probably into tomorrow, maybe um, Wildwood. And they were great. But before that, he'd been, t- unfortunately, talking to, Sean had been talking to Paul Weller about a review I'd done of 
the first or second solo album, which on the last line I'd written was Paul Weller is back almost. And I don't think Paul was very happy with that. And Sean said, it says almost, it says Paul Weller is back. And Weller goes, almost. <laughs> I think he was quite angry about the almost. But they were fantastic. It wasn't my taste. It sounded like, I imagine, traffic. I wasn't really a fan of, I understand why he was doing it possibly, but I wasn't really a fan of that kind of getting back to the country, um, slightly soulful rock. He was very good at it, but it wasn't poppy enough. I've always been a pop person. But it was nice to see him on the telly. They also had Dexies on the same series in their latest comeback. So there was an awful, co- there was an awful lot of organic revisiting of 80s music going on. It was amazing that show because it was, it was, I hadn't realized until or remembered until doing the, the research for this that it was such a short run. It was only like 13 episodes. This is like January 1993. And the lineup was just, which I do remember from the time, like Simon Day, you got people like Mark Thomas, who actually came off the podcast recently, who was just a genius. I love him. And, you know, Kevin Day, Steve Coogan, an incredible, incredible series of shows hosted by Jonathan Ross, who actually ended up doing a bit of backing vocals for Weller on, on that episode you were talking about. What an amazing experience. But I also read that you could tell an outrageous story about that show. Is that suitable for this podcast? Oh, I can't. I can't because <laughs> still alive. But it was um, it was interesting. Because it was modelled on the American Saturday Night Live with a British element, and it was quite an exciting place to be. We were getting paid for some of us a lot of money that we hadn't seen before, and every week there was a party, and we were just. We, I think we had a lot to drink. It was just mad because it was a disaster. <laughs> Nobody watched it or it was perceived as such. And changes kept being made. But yeah, because of Sean, we had fantastic music, amazing guests. I remember walking through the scene dock when the B-52s were on, walking past Danny DeVito and thinking, this is weird. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It wasn't a hit. Jonathan Ross basically left his own company after making it and then went into this sort of wilderness doing talent shows with Gary Bushel for a few years. But yeah, Mark Thomas went and did very well from it. Hoogan, obviously, Steve did brilliantly from it. Very Everybody on it did fine later on. It's just very, it was just very strange. I don't really know what happened, but it was great to turn up every Saturday, you know, and see people like Paul Weller or the B-52s do a live rehearsal and then turn up in the evening and watch it again. I do have one weird story, which was around that time, Penn and Teller had been on and they got their own show. So me and a friend of mine called John went. We couldn't get in the audience. So there was a green room. There was a little room where they were showing it on a monitor. So we went in there. It was a tiny room and Penn and Teller had been passed and Lou Reed and John Cale were in there. And that was really weird. 
And I remember Lou Reed had got these enormous glasses like Dennis Taylor, the snooker player. And I was trying to, I had a drink and I was trying to illustrate this to my friend John by putting my own glasses on upside down, pointing at Lou Reed and saying, look, it's Dennis Taylor. And I think I probably only didn't get beaten up by Lou Reed because he didn't understand what I was saying. But <laughs> so that was related because that was all very weird. Also, such an exciting time then for comedy because some of the stuff you're doing is, I mean, it's all around the same period, the early 90s, where, like I say, we have On the Hour, which is this incredible parody current affairs show on Radio 4. And again, some amazing writing talent, some amazing um, talent you know, at the front of it as well. People like Chris Morris and Stuart Lee, Richard Herring involved. And, and the birth of Alan Partridge, which then turns into the TV show The Day to Day later on. And this relationship is something with Armando Iannucci was part of all this as well, which has gone on to you know just thrive in terms of the amount of shows that you've been part of from the thick of it, which we have to talk about was just a work of genius. And then Veep and stuff. That relationship with Armando Iannucci must have been really special from day one, but also it seemed like you were modelling that US thing of writing teams, which was very new and very different to the UK at that time. That wasn't how we wrote sitcoms and comedy. There's a team of writers so much, was it then? Well, no, I mean, that's the thing about... Amanda's always reminded me of someone like Madonna in the sense that it's still Armando at the middle of it, but he just updates and upgrades the people who work with him. So, you know, someone like Madonna's been going since the 80s and she just goes, who's the latest person, keeps an eye out for talent. And Armando was doing that to a large extent. You know, he sort of worked with people, as you say, like Herring and Lee when he kicked off with me and Stephen Wells because we came from the NME. And then later on, you know, he works with the Gibbons brothers doing Alan Partridge now, worked with Jesse, Jesse Armstrong and Jesse and Sam and just people pass through. And, it's, yeah, and I'm really lucky because I worked on the very first thing on the hour and then didn't. And then came back, asked out of the blue to work on the final series of The Thick of It, which led to me doing Veep and Avenue 5. And it is extraordinary. And he is brilliant. He is, you know, the major British comic talent and also comic mover and shaker. And he's responsible, you know, through on the hour and the day today. That pretty much was Monty Python of the 80s and 90s. And with him and Chris, pretty much responsible for every good bit of comedy that's great that isn't Vic and Bob since then. I mean, how does it work? You're trying to get your gags in with a room. Are you trying to top each other? Is it a collaborative thing? Is it a, that tension of trying to outdo each other? I mean, from my point of view, it's not literally a room. You know, it's basically you would meet in a room. Essentially, you'd just be told, you'd be updated. Right, we're doing this. This is the script for this episode. This is what the characters are doing. And sometimes you'd be literally given a script and be told, we need funnier lines. And you just go off on your own, if you were me, or with your writing partner, if you were somebody else. And you just submit lines. And it was, yeah, it's like putting bids in, really. And you'd be given different bits to work on. And Armando or whoever would look at the script and then uh, choose the best version. I'm not quite sure the American version works. I don't think it does work with a lot of people just sat in a room shouting at each other and suggesting things. So Armando's version is a bit more cool and controlled, really. There must still be that absolute buzz, though, as well, of when you're watching it and you see your gags on the screen being delivered by the oh, amazing The, the high point of my career was being in a, a read-through, and I'd written a scene where Malcolm Tucker pretends he doesn't know about Star Wars to wind up Chris Addison's character, Ollie, who loves Star Wars. And I'd written just got an odd thing. It's a duologue. It goes on for quite a while. And I was there when... Peter Capaldi and Chris Addison were reading the scene out loud for the first time, and Peter Capaldi was laughing as he read it, and it was overwhelming. I was so... I've often told people I wrote it that since, but at the time I didn't shout, I wrote that. But it was completely overwhelming and fantastic. And then I thought it had fallen out of the script, 
because that often happens. You know, Armando decides, someone decides that it's not right. And then I watched the program and it was in. And it turns up on Twitter, it turns up on YouTube and stuff like that. So that's really great. But obviously, in the end, it's just working on these amazing shows. Yeah. And then I went on to Veep. And I always say about Veep, my cliche is that when you work on a British show, sometimes you see actors from it in an advert. Whereas, you know, when I worked on Veep, I would go and watch a film and I would see people I'd met on Veep in a blockbuster movie. That's really exciting. They were such brilliant shows because, um, I mean, the, the ridiculous thing is they seem so farcical at times, whereas now you look at it and you go, hold on, this, this is sensible compared to where we are now in politics. Yeah, the floodgates did slightly open after that. I'm not entirely sure why. Probably not because of Veep and the thick of it. Who knows, maybe introduce the public to the idea that politicians are idiots. <laughs> or maybe politicians just felt. I met Amber Rudd once and somebody said, this is David, he works on the thick of it. And it was a bit like they'd said, this is David, he's an assassin, because she seemed genuinely nervous. So that was nice. <laughs> Let's go back to Mr. Weller. So writing for Word magazine, 22 Dreams was the point where you picked back up really with Paul and his career and absolutely loved that album, right? Yeah, it's just, I don't know, if you, there was the sentence Paul Weller is using loops. It was just he'd become a bit like Noel Gallagher in a sense. He'd become kind of stuck in the mud. You know, he'd become like old ways of, Imagine he's the kind of person who uses vintage amps and blows the dust off. And suddenly to be using modern technology and to be writing, you can always tell when the song titles get weird. I can't remember the song titles. Something like 22 and 3 was the miner's number or something. I forget that one. So obviously whatever's going on in his head is a bit strange again. And it was more kind of a respect for the fact that he was doing that rather than just rewriting, you know, Stanley Road. Because we'd had a lot of Stanley Road in the 90s. And he just finally decided to move on, and I thought it was a fantastic thing to do. And some people do new albums so that they've got something to play in between the oldies, and their new albums sound like their old ones. And some people are still moving on. And when I was a kid, the idea that you would be a rock musician when you were 30 was ludicrous. You know, you were clapped out at 27. So the idea that you can be a rock musician who's coming up to 70 and still being inventive and listening to new things and doing new things is great. I don't always like it. But I'd rather be. I'd rather not like it because it was interesting. You again, these selections of words when you're writing. You said it was an extraordinary attic of an album, and there's much to be explored. But again, like taking the time to choose language is so important for a writer, isn't it? Yes, apparently. Um, <laughs> Does yeah. it come that easy? You just go, yeah, done. That's that's. There's the line. Now, well, if, you, if you're writing a review, you haven't really got a great deal of time to think. But it's impressions, isn't it? It's the thing that comes into your head. And the first thing that came into my head with that was the attic thing. But it's very clattery. It just sounds like someone barging about in an attic with a dim bulb looking for things. Now, one of the other things somebody tweeted me about was um, Neil Harris. You had actually tweeted something. So he said to me, I have to ask you about this, all right? So you said, I saw Blur in Eastbourne in the 90s and had a very strange night, which became a very strange weekend when Paul Weller phoned me up the next day to have a word. Oh, Yeah. Yes. So I went to see Blur with various colleagues in Eastbourne and I befriended somebody briefly. I won't say their name, but we stayed up all night and just walking around Eastbourne. I mean, literally all night. It was crippling. And I remember having breakfast in the morning and going home on a train that seemed to take forever on the hottest day and going to bed that afternoon and just as I got to sleep my phone rang and it was Paul Weller and he said he wanted a word I'm like that thing you wrote I'm like what thing 
said, you compared me to Duran Duran. My mind is racing at this point. And I, I have never said, I'm nothing like Duran Duran. And then I remembered that I'd done a funny thing in Mojo. And it was about image changing, really. It was completely innocuous. It was like a graph. Bands who changed their image. You know, like the Beatles, they started up as mop tops and they became psychedelic. Duran Duran were in it. And that was just because they'd been new romantics. And then they, they didn't really change their image. They'd gone a bit moody with Nile Rogers. And, of course, Paul Weller, because you can't deny that Paul Weller has changed his image a lot. But he had taken it. And I think he'd been up all night as well. This was the period, you know, that famous Noel Gallagher story when he's in Noel Gallagher's garden with a bonfire, waving his shirt over his head and shouting, Weller. <laughs> I think Paul had had a big night as well. And then he said that we should meet up and talk. And I'm like, all right, where? And he said, Regent's Park. And this was the point where I realised what he meant was he wanted to have a fight with me. And then it sort of fizzled out. But I was a bit alarmed at the time. But it just became, in my mind, like the duelists. I was going to meet Paul Weller in a park at dawn. And we were, and it was going to be foggy. And we would have flintlocks. And his second some, his second would be McTolbert, which was <laughs> a bit dated. But it, nothing ever happened. And um, time passed and it was forgotten. But yeah, that was a dramatic moment. Were you constantly looking over your shoulder all the time, I guess? Not really, because it's quite easy to spot if Paul Weller's coming after you. And also, I lived in Hackney. I don't think you could be bothered to take the bus. <laughs> Unless it's a good record shot, then probably not. There's some good record shots, but mostly secondhand. And then he'd just see all his style council records from 50p, and he'd get sad and go, oh. <laughs> Have you ever interviewed him, David? No, I haven't. Apart from that one time with Paolo in the 80s, I've never, I've only met him once. I've never done a phoner with him or anything. I mean, no, it's weird. That's the weird thing about being a music journalist. You write about people and sometimes they read it and sometimes they come up to you and quote it. And that's happened a few times. It's always a bit alarming. There are a lot of music writers. There are a lot of magazines. The fact that they're kind of, you know, digging into all the stuff and then, okay, who's the one writing this? I'm going to get in touch. You would have thought he'd have the time. Well, it was it's the way he, it's the way he was or is. He just was interested in people's perceptions of him. And the music press then was a good way of finding out because while we're all different writers, you know, there is a kind of perception. And I think with Paul Weller, like a lot of people have long careers, there was a perception that, you know, he got a bit above himself with the style council later on, which I think is wrong. You know, as I think if he'd been an indie artist doing like weird, strange, sprawling concept albums, people would have loved it. But because he was working with black music and he was commercially successful, I think people dumped on him, which led to the bizarre situation when Britpop came along. And he was making, in my opinion, the worst records of his career, the most conservative ones. People were really happy because he sounded like the people he was influencing, you know, or at least he dressed like them, the mod father and all that stuff. Yeah, you said about Stanley Road that you still, to this day, can't be bothered with that as an album. I don't remember it, to be honest. All those records, like Peacock Suit or whatever it is, I can't remember. They all blur to me. They're just sort of, I know Stanley Road is considered to be sort of like his late period masterpiece, but I honestly think there's better ones. Even in recent years, you've been raving about things like A Kind Revolution. This was writing for, I think it was Classic Rock magazine, and saying that he, he brings peace and love and melody to the masses as he nears his 60s. Every song is a standout. Yeah. Sometimes it suits people, especially when you get older. It suits people to be mellow. And somebody said, I think Bertolt Brecht said, it, terrible is the temptation to happiness or to do good. And I think, you know, that's where Paul Weller's gone. Sometimes you go out and you see sort of pub punk bands, people who are around in the late 70s and they've got massive beer guts, lost all their hair, they're wearing terrible T-shirts and all their songs are called She's a Fat Slag, Where's My Beer? <laughs> and you just think, 
And the thing about, you know, I'd like to hear some jam songs, but I totally respect him for the fact that he doesn't do, really do jam songs. You know, he could come on now, he could play Wembley tomorrow, do all of Snap in a row with a couple of Star Council songs at the end, and his entire audience would ascend into the skies with him. But he doesn't do that, and I think that's great. I want to talk to you about being a published author as well. And we get, I mentioned earlier on, we get these incredible comic novels from you every year or so. All My Colours, Night Train, Ricky's Hand, We Had the Mule, and actually a couple of writing manuals. So one of the ideas that came to me about this podcast, so many people have said, oh, you've got to turn it into a book. You've got to turn it into a book. You should turn it into a book. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. It's a, you know, it's a time-consuming process. But the love of putting your own work out there with your name on it is something that's important to you in, in recent years as well, right? Yeah. I mean, I've always liked writing and I've always liked writing anything. I'm fascinated by people who can spend five years on one project and just come back and go, no, publish this, make my film, make my TV show. I'm more like, oh, what's this? It's just, you know, we have limited time on Earth, so your choice is do you do one thing really well or loads of things really badly? And I've always gone for the latter. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, if somebody says to me, would you like to write a musical? I'm like, yeah, and I've done that, and they've never been made. But, wow, this is much more interesting than writing the same thing again. And with writing the fiction, that's something I really love doing. And so it can go in any direction, and I would like to have more books published. But it's all just really interesting. So, you know, you should do a book, and if it's hard work, you should get someone else to do the transcribing of the shows and pay them for it. People will work cheaply. But, yeah, books are great. Books stay around. Books are mobile. Do you have a process? Do you have that discipline of, like, you know, you're getting up at 5 a.m., you're cracking through it? Well, how do you structure your day to make that work and to get into that zone? Because it's very different writing from the other projects that you're writing for, for TV and comedy and that kind of thing, right? Well, I have a family, so and my wife has a job. So that gives you a structure. And previously I didn't, and it was a bit harder. Deadlines are good. People are against deadlines and think they're some kind of evil, you know, the man-imposed thing. But deadlines are good because you need a framework in life. Otherwise, you'll just be sitting on your backside all day. You need a framework, even if it's just having a dog to walk. It's really useful set hours. Okay, well, I'm going to crack on with your inspiration, with the how to write everything and how to be a writer books. I will crack on and I'll let you know I go on. And there are two stories I have to ask you about before you go. One of which um, is a Tom Jones story, if you wouldn't mind telling me. So this was, well, you asked oh, yeah. Tom Jones what it was like to be a sex symbol. Yeah, I was doing an interview with Tom Jones and he was great, but he was, everything bounced off him. You know, he's very wily and very wise. And it's like, you knew, well, oh, I knew Elvis. He's slightly bored of the story, you know. Trying to get something out of him. In the end, I thought, fuck this. And I just said, so Tom, what's it like being a sex symbol? And he said, well, that to me, it's like being asked by a cripple what it's like to walk. <laughs> and it's just, okay, I don't care. I've got my quote now. Oh, no. I remember my mum reading it because my opening line was like, Tom Jones is built like a brick shit house. He should have ladies written on one set of knuckles and gents on the other. And I do remember that he was signing a photo for a friend's boyfriend, and their name was Trixie. I remember he was signing it, and he said, in title, Trixie, oh, that's a tart's name. <laughs> Thinking, yeah, I, w I won't pass that on. <laughs> I just like Tom Jones because he's so full of life. Wonderful. 
Um, and then there was this other. I'm going to I'm going to read this as you wrote it because this deserves to be read out loud. This is so fabulous. So you said you see artists make the transition from sexy to cult. Adamant now resembles Jack Sparrow's uncle. <laughs> Kate Bush favors huge jumpers and sings from underneath a slanket, possibly. David Bowie still more attractive than some species of songbird stays at home. Sexiness becomes a hindrance to the serious artist, which is why Bob Dylan now dresses like his own cheap waxwork, and Joni Mitchell positions herself as the angriest headmistress in the world. Even Tom Jones, whose entire career has been based on demonstrating to the world what a sexy penis would sound like if it could sing, has entered the world of anti-sex. He no longer dyes his hair or wipes his brow with ladies' undergarments. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I have no memory of this. Really? That record collector. (laughs) Yeah, I think he was, yeah. Well, it's true. I I don't understand it, to be honest, but it sounds good. I guess it's that thing of a comedian and, and comic writing where you're just on to the next all the time, right? It's kind of, you know, you're constantly looking for the next gag, the next funny article, the next thing that you're writing. And I guess same is true of the music journalist because of the fact that these things are coming around so often, you're just constantly on to the next write-up, the next review and stuff. Well, you don't I've hold always, these I've, things in your memory, no? Well, I've always liked that. I mean, it's best of both worlds. You don't have to remember it. Someone else has written it down or printed it for you. Most of my stuff I find really hard to read. From when I was younger, it just seems unbearably twee and knowing. Um, trying too hard. Well, yeah, I like it when there's a good joke. It's interesting to discover that sometimes the weird thing is about being old is when you write in a, a review of an album that's come out. So say I'm doing uh, our favourite shop for classic rock or something, and I'll read about it and listen to it. Then I'll go online, I'll look on Wikipedia, and I'll be halfway through the article, and it'll say, in 2001, Q Magazine reviewed the reissue, and David Quantic said, I've reviewed this before. <laughs> What did I say last time? Shit, I hated it then. <laughs> That's really weird. Just And then, yeah, I mean, you always end up with the same opinion and you always end up saying the same thing. It's very, there's a couple of things. There was a review of a Kate Bush single, Cloud Busting, I did. And I love that song. But when NME on the 10th anniversary or the 20th anniversary of the single coming out reprinted the review, and apparently I thought it was crap and I hated Kate Bush. I was completely baffled by that. I guess it's always that thing of like you're writing in the moment that you're in and the headspace that you're in as well. Maybe things don't connect to the time oh, yeah. they do much, much later. Right? I suppose that's the other thing with the weekly magazine. It's a lot of fun. You don't really have much time to think about things, fortunately. Hey, look, this has been so lovely, David. I love spending time with you and hearing your stories. I do have two final questions for you before you go, okay? Okay. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council, or solo. What would you go with? Gosh, um, I'll probably go with Eaton Rifles. Because it's, it's the one that's got the most in it. It's like an album. It's the funniest lyric. It's a really good rock song. I should cheat and so I can have one of each. So I'd have Long Old Summer from the Style Council. And that one about the minor, I can't remember the name of from the solo career. Seven and Three is a striker's name. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well done. Right. Purpose of this podcast, David, I don't know if I've told you this. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career, right? Never got to interview Weller. I've always loved his music. It was my one big regret from giving up my career in radio that I never got to interview Paul. So um, rather than just simply asking, I created a podcast. We're now on episode 150 plus with the sole purpose of getting an interview with Paul. So if Mm. it happens, David, what should I ask him? What next? That's my question. Presumably you've dug into Fat Pop and On the Sunset as well, although I've not seen you writing about those. But I think I wrote about Fat Pop for someone. Yeah, I like Fat Pop. It's good. When you've got a long career, the thing is the way to judge it, I think, is kind of when it's over. Because 
you know, when you listen to someone like Bob Dylan, you don't go, right, I've got every album here, I'm going to listen to them. You go, like, oh, what's the best ones? And then you work your way back. And I think with Paul, one of the, because he's still going, the tendency is to go, it's just pounce on it, like an episode of a new Doctor Who or something, and go, right, this is what's wrong with it, this is what's right with it. Whereas the best thing is just wait till he's done a decade, you know, and then go back and listen to everything. Things do need to settle in. Okay, like a fine wine. In terms of what's next for you, so it's a great question for Mr. Weller. Uh, what are you working on right now, David? I'm trying to f- trying to do some notes on a book. I'm doing lots of scripts for different people, working on other people's scripts. I'm recording a French and Saunders radio series um, next month or whatever happened to Baby Jane Austen. And I will hopefully be going to recordings of that in Plymouth. So that'll be nice. Oh, wow, 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 wow. That would be an incredible experience. It'll be good, yeah. David, thank you so much for joining me, man. Thank you, Dan. Nice talking to you. My thanks once again to David Quantic for joining the podcast. What a lovely fella and what a great episode as well. You can check out more details on some of the things that we talked about in the show notes for this podcast. Just head to my website. It's paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Whilst you're there, you can find the whole archive, all the interviews in this incredible series so far. You can get in touch as well and you can head into my store. Right now we have exclusive merchandise, our pin badge, our sweatshirts and t-shirts. Plus, you can buy our official podcast mug or get yourself a virtual coffee. Thanks to you if you've done that. Get a virtual coffee, get a shout on the podcast. It's dead simple. Hello, Martin Bonhomme. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Mike C, Martin Glover. Hello, Simon Carslidge. Nice to meet you the other week as well, Simon. Hi to Johnny O'Brien. Hello, Johnny. Hello to Grant. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Night Design says, I'm now officially a member of the Have to Wait for the Next Episode Club. Such is life, I suppose. The best things come to he who waits and all that. Exactly. And one day, this won't be here either, all right? We'll have finished the whole journey, so make the most of it, my friend. Hello to Martin Morrow. Hello, Martin. Hello to Brian G. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Mike Steer. Thank you, sir. Hello to Smeg from the 829 Club. Hello to Jen. Hello, Alex McLaughlin, who says, When I saw the Brendan Lynch episode was an hour long, I thought, listen in two parts. Nope. Listened all the way through. Another belter. Thank you, Alex. Hello to Stephen Cartwright. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Stu Burns. Hello to Jane, the jam tarts with a heart. Hello to Nick Keane. Hello to Sean Wilson. Hello, Sean. He says, hi, Dan. Just to give you a big shout out and say thanks for all of this. Who would have known this would become what it has? Thanks to you, mate. Well done, Sean. Thank you, Sean. I may well have done this one before as well. I'm not sure, but let's say hello to Alan Anderson. Hello, Alan. Says, fantastic work, Dan. Love listening on my drives to and from work in Adelaide. Feels like I'm in my own little Weller world. Love it. Well, I'm glad it's making an impact down under. Thank you, sir. Head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can get yourself a virtual coffee and we'll give you a shout out on an upcoming episode of the podcast as well. Coming soon on this series, I'm going to play you some amazing conversations that we had at the big Weller Weekender, the Here Comes the Weekend event down in Woking with Nikki Weller. We had a Style Council panel and a brilliant episode from Steve Nichol talking about his time on Brass and Keys with the jam all to come here on this podcast make sure you follow you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts do spread the word on social media as well if you can share the links always appreciated we love getting new listeners just head to facebook instagram or twitter and share the links on there won't you that'll be great thanks for listening i'll see you next time